Today's show is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Search for The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we'll talk about Netflix's massive expansion and their latest critical hit, Marvel's Jessica Jones. Jesse, Do not call me that. We used to do a lot more than just touch hands. Yeah. It's called rape. That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. We're here this week with Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons, and we have a special guest, New York Magazine editor and our resident Marvel expert, Abraham Reisman. Yes, I prefer the term Marvel zombie. That's the term of art for dweebs and geeks, but yes. Mm -hmm. Well, before we jump into Jessica Jones, I thought we could start with talking about what a big year Netflix has had in general, they premiered 10 Netflix originals this year. Is that 10? 10. And Jeez Louise. I think last year they only did three. So it's like a crazy, crazy jump It's in. 10 new shows. New shows. These, are oh, on, these aren't like shows they've acquired. Right, but I mean like as opposed to, are we counting Orange oh, is New Black? No, or, we're not. Okay. We're, so this includes Sense8, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Bloodline, Daredevil, Grace and Frankie, Wet Hot American Summer, Narcos, Master of None oh, with man. Bob and David and Jessica Jones. Yeah. So that's 10. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I'm just like, oh, I reviewed almost all of them. I know. I was really <laughs> nervous when I, I heard we were going to talk about Netflix in general. I was like, ooh, how many of these have I watched? But like a lot of them I forget are even Netflix original series. That's, that's not, right. that branding isn't really that important anymore. It's just there's a television program that happens. Right. Like that, that's not a novelty that like, oh, Netflix has a show. Do you think there's any way that you can define what? the Netflix brand is. Overall, these shows are all pretty good. Even the ones that I actually think are pretty <laughs> yeah. bad, like, they're not as bad as actual bad, bad shows. Right. right? right. Like, I don't care for Marco Polo. I certainly don't care for Sense8. That said, like, they're not... Well, Marco Polo's really not. <laughs> but, but they have their audiences. But they're, like, doing yeah. stuff. I mean, I feel like, you know, when you compare that lineup, highs and lows, to anyone else, I think that's a track record to be, like, really proud of. Um, And if you factor in how good some of their existing programming is, Orange is the New Black, BoJack Horseman, like, this is a really solid stable of shows. You know, even compared to, like... That was a good BoJack reference, stable. (laughs) Sorry. I was writing my top ten list today. I watched a bunch of BoJack last night. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think overall it's definitely still in that prestige, Tony, like, glitzy is sort of the wrong word, but in that sort of realm of... Compare us to HBO. Don't compare us to CBS. Right? Yes, very you know? much so. And yeah. I, I mean, obviously, like, the bad blood between HBO and Netflix continues yeah. to, like, be oh, like, What a, a great fun... Cold War we have <laughs> there. It's great. Uh, it's just like, oh, piles of money fighting yeah, piles the, of money. They're... Who has the biggest pile? Yes. Well, but, but along those lines, I think uh, even beyond the actual quality, because, you know, obviously that's – some people might think these things are, are garbage. You can – pretty objectively say most of these are pretty ambitious yeah like they all take to varying degrees big risks i mean some of them are you know 
more standard. I mean, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt was originally going to be a network show. So, like, there's some stuff on there that's a little gutsy, but it's not, you know, wild and crazy. But as we'll get into with Jessica Jones, like, I can't imagine that being on... I mean, I I could barely imagine that it happened at all uh, thematically, but I definitely could never imagine that being on a standard network and right. all of these things. There there are elements, even if it's it's comedy. There there are it's weird stuff or ambitious stuff or big stuff. I also think they're very voice driven, very auteur driven. I think it's very, very clear so, yeah. to think about the creators and the writers and like those voices as being the show, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so obviously for stuff like What Hot American Summer and. Certainly Bob and David, we have like a clear idea of those creators' voices and what those shows are kind of going to sound like and entail. But for a lot of these other shows, that was a lot less obvious that that was going to be the defining factor here. And I think that's, you know, when we think about why would you want, as a show creator, to have your show be on Netflix, for example. Yeah, because like if you're Tina Fey, like, like you can go, you know, like a lot of people want you to have a show with that. Even if that show eventually doesn't work out for NBC, like, you know, I don't think she could have gone elsewhere. Yeah. Or Netflix. Yeah. You have to think that there's a lot of people saying, Tina Fey, come make a show for us. Right. Right. Um, I think that the sort of the image of Netflix is that they're very hands off Mm -hmm. and that there won't be a lot of creative notes and there won't be, you know, kowtowing to a a network schedule you can make as many or as few episodes as you want kind of like most of them right. are 13 but it doesn't seem like you have to have 13 uh which sometimes it should be a lot sometimes fewer it but be less, perhaps yeah. master of none was like a breeze to yeah yeah, yeah that just yeah. goes in and out with bob and david too i was shocked yeah. at how quickly that went by well that that yeah that that's not 13 um no. so i think that like all of these things contribute to this image of netflix as being like a home for tv artists yeah. do you think they've really cemented that image this year because i remember we talked about netflix earlier in the year and i think we were all a little bit more skeptical of whether you know they had started out with House of Cards and Orange is the New Black right. and these shows that really kind of changed the game, and then this year you know we had Grace and Frankie Bloodline shows that were received a little more lukewarmly. Tepidly. Yeah, Do you I think mean, like like at the end of the year now they've released like two of the most critically acclaimed shows of the year: Master of None and Jessica Jones. Yeah, within a week of each other. Yeah, too. <laughs> <laughs> Master of None I think is is the most unusual of all these shows because. Everything really? else, not that it itself is so unusual, oh, okay. but I think that the sort of how this show does being a show, right? Like how it mm. sort of embraces its own showness is the most different from how other shows are. Because I think as good as House of Cards sometimes seems, which I mean, I think House <laughs> of Cards is like a mm-hmm. mediocre uh, show in a great show's costume, uh, literally, uh, uh. <laughs> that you could picture that on Showtime or HBO. Because oh, absolutely. It, like yeah. if that makes right. sense. Um, I think Orange is the New Black, it, now it seems like it could be on a Showtime or something like that. At the time it was like, ooh, wow, like all women and right. like, multiracial cast and stuff. But I do think that like, day in, day out, those are very traditional episodes told in a traditional way. I think a lot of these shows still fit that model. I think Bloodline, to me, feels much more like a Showtime show because it's, again, not very good, um, (laughs) but very fancy, very high-end. I mean, again, like Bloodline is not like horrible garbage. It's just like not quite as good as it thinks it yeah. is. But Master um, of None. But Master of None was the first was was one that really stood out to me as being absolutely off that network grid. You know, and mm-hmm. maybe really? I had a like, real I point like of view. I mean, I, I like guess it, like maybe oh, with Louis on FX. I was just about to say. I felt like I mean that's the comparison that gets made a lot, and that's the aspect where I I, I 
don't really get when people go like, oh, Master of None is crazy revolutionary. Like, there's nothing like it on TV. And I'm like, I like Master of None a lot, but like, yeah, I mean, we have Louis already. Not That's not knocking Master of None, <laughs> right. but I, I just don't get how revolutionary it is. I think just seeing something with such a different point of view and the kinds of topics that Aziz and Alan chose to focus right. on. Topics, I you know, guess that's, like that's it's where like it's interesting. It doesn't but... it's not necessarily like stuff we haven't heard before, but it's maybe stuff we haven't seen in this format before. Sure. Fair I enough. also think when you think about the kinds of shows that FX is greenlighting now and the sort of stars that they consider part of the FX stable, mm-hmm. FX is making sex and drugs and rock and roll. You know? They're yeah. like, okay, let's give Dennis Leary another show. Yeah. Right. And I think that the the overall like tone and, and identity at FX has trended very far towards like deeply cynical yeah. in this way that Master of None did not strike me as cynical at all. No, it's not. Um, it That's can be true. like emotional, and there are parts of it that I found like sad or upsetting or or raw-ish, I guess. Mm-hmm. But like that sort of, you know, I think like Louis has just this whole idea of like now we all have to have nightmares that our penises are disappearing, yeah, <laughs> like that like sense of just like dread and frankly middle-agedness, which I'm not saying is a bad thing to make a show about, right. but it's not what Master of None is about. And I think that right. FX pushing its comedy stuff towards FXX, so with something like You're the Worst, which yeah. I think, you know, could go, you could imagine that and Master of None being like companions in a certain way. I can see it. But still, there's like such a cynicism and, and a, I don't know, like nastiness on those shows. And I like them. They're good shows. But I think Master of None has a more, like a higher assumption of decency for the rest of humanity than I think a lot of FX or FXX shows have. Would you think of it as a, uh, a sad com? One of our best <laughs> neologisms of... Uh, I don't. I actually think don't so. think of Master of None as no, a sad No, I, I don't either, yeah. But I do think that the degree to which it sort of chooses when its episodes need to be in order and when it doesn't and how standalone they are and how, you know, a third of the episode are like this, a third are like this, a third are like mm-hmm. this other thing. I think that is unusual. And even as Louis has grown, its first season was not that. I see them as as pretty different in, in the ways that they function. You know, and then I guess Bob and David would be the other one, even though it's obviously like basically just Mr. Show. I think it is and it isn't. Yeah. Though. It's sort of, you know, Mr. At the risk of doing the stupidest way to describe culture. It's like this meets this. But it's it's Mr. Show in a post Tim and Eric world. And that's why I mean, Tim and Eric are heavily involved in that. But like it is. Mr. I mean, I don't know. We're probably I could go no, really deep. What, what Margaret is... and I could go deep down the <laughs> well, Mr. Show and to, with Bob and David no. rabbit hole. I'd yeah. love to hear what you guys thought of it because we haven't talked about it on the uh, show. I mean, I think we'll pop. Yeah. <laughs> So I think it's I, I, you know, it's hard to think about what it was like to watch Mr. Show for the first time. I can barely. Re- I mean, I remember the joy. I remember the sensation. <laughs> I remember like, the dorm room. Seeing the Van Hammersley bit for the first time and just being in tears. I mean, it's it's too much. It was a complete overload. I'd never felt anything like it. It it was like a borderline sexual experience. Like, it was incredible. <laughs> yeah. And I've watched all of those episodes more than anything else. Those got me through tough times. They were things I watched to celebrate. Like, Mr. Show episodes are so vital to me. So, like, I knew that uh, with Bob and David was not going to be that. Right. Um, And I think this is the rare time where I was able to, like, manage my expectations enough that I was like, this is good on its own merits in a lot of ways. And I was not hurt by it. But that took a lot of effort beforehand to make sure that I was prepared. (laughs) I think I had to go into Bob and David with, like, a lot of context for myself of, like, okay... So Mr. Show has this like, huge role in my emotional life, you know, like, and it's something yeah. that I reference 
constantly. Like anytime I use a pan, I'm like, the super pan is not magic. It yeah. will burn you. Like I was thinking time. about literally every this time. Margaret, this morning I was cooking my breakfast on a pan and I accidentally left it on for a little bit and I was thinking like, now this pan's been cooking for nine hours. Yeah. That's pretty hot. Like I think about that all the Yeah, that's it's, definitely yeah. like if any Anytime there's like any picture of any kind of lizard, I'm like stupid iguana. Like I just like it's just in my yeah. brain and like my spirit. It's like, a way it's... to interpret the world. Yeah, and so you know to be like, oh, here's a new part of that. It's not the same thing. It's no, it's not possible for me to be 18 again and for this to feel yeah. like it felt. I also think because so much of comedy has been so influenced by Mr. Show that a lot of Bob and David felt like sort of rehash, which isn't fair because it's their Ash, you know? <laughs> so, but yeah. because so much, so, so much of, I think, popular comedy and certainly the kinds of comedy that I like, not just sketch stand up too, yeah. is like a direct descendant of the sensibilities and ideas of Mr. Show that watching new sketches from them and new material from them doesn't feel as new, I think, just because there's so many descendants already that this feels like a family reunion, but I, I'm still in pretty good touch with a lot of the cousins, you know? <laughs> So that, it's like nice yeah. to see everybody, but like I'm still I I am up to date. Right? There were a couple things that I thought were especially admirable. Number one being Paul F. Tom- watching Paul F. Tompkins was fascinating because he was terrific on the original Mr. Show, but he has more so than I think anyone else on that show really grown as a performer. Yeah, and so watching. 2015 Paul F. Tompkins <laughs> yeah. was a revelation. I was like, oh, I'm sure he feels this way too, but like, I wish he could go back in time knowing what he knows now about comedy. He's one of our more gifted comedic mm-hmm. thinkers and do Mr. Show over again. But like, it, it's, it is wonderful to see those cousins that you stayed in touch with. But yeah, there were moments when I went like, I admire this and I'm not laughing. Well, why don't we shift gears a little and talk about Marvel? A whiplash-inducing <laughs> change of topic because we're about to talk about one of the darkest, <laughs> most violent and upsetting shows on any kind yeah. of serialized uh, film. So before we make that transition, a word from our sponsors. Have you heard The Message? An original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. All of season one is available now, so listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. Just to contextualize it a bit, can mm. we talk a little bit about Netflix's larger Marvel oh boy, can plan? We? Yeah. Which, <clears throat> Abe, I think you can sure. help enlighten us a bit. They have all, you know, it's this is... The second in a series? Yes, that's correct. So the thumbnail version is there is this thing called the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which began in 2008 with the first Iron Man movie. And all of the Marvel stuff that is licensed versions of Marvel characters from Marvel Comics, except for the Fantastic Four, the X-Men, which are owned by... 20th Century Fox, and by, you know what, I'm already getting too deep in the weeds. The point is, a huge chunk of the stuff that you call Marvel movies all exist in the same shared universe, meaning on some technical level in the minds of the creators, like the Iron Man movie, the first three Iron Man movies happened at the same time as Captain America, the first Captain America. And is this and, only like, since all, 2008? Only since 2008. Okay. Nothing that you would call a Marvel movie prior to 2008 counts in the the shared universe. This has to do with an extremely complicated series of licensing agreements and legal battles, but now we have this world where Marvel Studios, which is owned by Disney, has cranked out a ton of extremely successful movies, and after those movies reached a critical mass of success, 
in 2013, they started TV ventures. Mm. So they had TV shows that were set in that same shared universe and would have occasional references to stuff that happened in the movies. So there was Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We, we always have to put Marvel's ahead of the title of all <laughs> nice these things. Branding. That's the official title. <laughs> Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Marvel's Agent Carter. Those were the first two TV shows. And they were on ABC, which is also owned by Disney. And then there was this expansion to Netflix. They set up this interesting deal with Netflix where they're going to do a bunch of series that are technically part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And if you've watched Jessica, Jessica Jones or Daredevil, you'll hear like occasional veiled references to stuff that happened in like the first Avengers movie. But it's mostly self-contained. Mm-hmm. It all takes place in one neighborhood in New York, which is preposterous because it's Hell's Kitchen, which is you know <laughs> one of the nicest places in the entirety of the city. But I think what they're counting on is it has a badass name and most people outside of New York wouldn't know that that's where you go to like, right. overpriced Italian restaurants <laughs> and condo. Uh, developments. So they have this semi-self-contained series of shows that will interact with one another, all set in Hell's Kitchen and all available on Netflix. So the first one was Daredevil, which came out earlier this year. Then there was Jessica Jones. There's going to be a second season of Daredevil. There's going to be Luke Cage, which will star the Mike Coulter character from Jessica Jones. There will eventually be Iron Fist, which is the most outlandish of all of the premises for these Netflix shows. Have we met Iron Fist? We have not. We have not met Iron Fist. It remains to be seen how on earth they're going to make the gritty street-level realism work with a character who, at least in the comics, is a white dude granted the mystical powers of the lost East Asian city of Kunlun and, like, has the ability to punch through walls using magic. It's really unclear how on wow. earth they can make that it's... sync up with all this other stuff. But they claim they're going to, and that after they've introduced Daredevil, Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, and Iron Fist, they're all going to team up in a... Similarly to how all the Marvel movies led up to the first Avengers movie, where everybody was all of a sudden on the same team, these are all going to lead up to The Defenders, which is going to be a series that follows them all as they fight crime in, in Hell's Kitchen. And that's in 2079? Oh, no, I, I, yes. <laughs> I can't remember that. I don't think they've actually set a date for The Defenders yet, but yeah, it's it'll be around the end of the decade, something like that. Huh. A lot of this has been a surprise for Marvel to see how successful everything has been. So, as far as I know, I could be wrong, but I don't think initially there were plans to have second seasons of these things. It was going to be oh, okay. like... Yeah, I could be wrong on that, but I don't remember that ever coming up. They They weren't like... We're going to have Daredevil, an ongoing series that will go on forever, and then also he'll be in The Defenders. I think the original plan, if I recall correctly, was to have each of these four individual shows. Each would have one season, then they would all team up Mm -hmm. in The Defenders. But Daredevil was this runaway success, I think somewhat undeservedly so, but people really loved it. And so there's going to be a second season. And we're going to meet, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe version of The Punisher. And, you know, there's a bunch of nonsense there. But Jessica Jones has also been this incredible surprise hit critically in a way that Daredevil was not. Daredevil, you know, there were there were good reviews of it, but I don't think anybody had the not same... Not like this. No, there was not nothing like this. Yeah. The, if you this... surfed the Tumblr tag for Daredevil, you saw people going like, all right, this, this kicks ass. Like, it's really right. dark and gritty. If you surf the Tumblr tag for Jessica Jones, which I have done so many times and just gone down that rabbit hole, <laughs> you see people going like, oh, this speaks to me in a way that literally nothing else on television right. is doing. And it transcended the comic book Absolutely. fandom Melissa world. Rosenberg, the showrunner, made the very wise—I mean, it's her and also Jeff Loeb, who's the head of Marvel's TV division— 
made the very wise decision to have this require no prior knowledge and also to require very minimal suspension of disbelief. Like, it's closer to magical realism than it is to superhero fiction. Right. There are powers that people have, but they're extensions of character arcs and character traits rather than being something that's shoehorned in so you can have punches and explosions. So for those who don't know the premise, Jessica Jones is... Her powers are that, are that she can... She's pretty strong she's and really she can strong. jump really high. Yes. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and she's a private investigator. And when we meet her, this is, like, I think, about a year after she had been under the influence of the villain, Kilgrave, who Kilgrave. has powers of mind control. And yes. he forced her to kill someone. And he does this and many other... And, and raped her. Let's just get... Oh, right. Let's and start using the R word because it's going to come up a <laughs> yes. lot. But yeah, he serially raped her. And he does this did this not just to her but to many of his victims yes and the show follows jessica trying to take him down basically right uh, in a very roundabout fashion <laughs> but yes it follows her and her best friend trish as they in coalition try to take this guy down and we're going to be speaking about the entire series on this podcast so if right. you're not up to date on jessica jones yeah. and you're planning on becoming so maybe save this because because this will yeah. be we're not holding back like we're going to talk about all 13 episodes and we'll give pretty full detail about what happened. So if you're spoiler phobic, now is your time yeah. to uh, to skip this segment. So how the show handles rape and consent has been a big discussion. The Guardian had a piece. It pointed out, you know, how unique it is and how it takes on emotional manipulation when right. it comes to rape. And we have a clip here of Jessica telling Kilgrave repeatedly that, yes, he did rape her. Jesse, do not call me that. We used to do a lot more than just touch hands. Yeah. It's called rape. What? Which part of staying in five-star hotels, eating in all the best places, doing whatever the hell you wanted is rape? The part where I didn't want to do any of it. Not only did you physically rape me, but you violated every cell in my body and every thought in my goddamn head. It's not what I was trying it to do. It doesn't matter what you were trying to do. You raped me again no. and again and again. How am I supposed to know? Huh? I never know if someone is doing what they want or what I tell them to. Oh, poor you. You have no idea, do you? I have to painstakingly choose every word I say. I once told a man to go screw himself. Can you even imagine? Jesus. I didn't have this. A home, loving parents, a family. You blame bad parenting? My parents died. You don't see me raping anyone. I hate that word. So I'll be honest, like, I, unlike most other people, I did not love this show. Not because I think it's really terrible, just because it's super not my kind of show mm -hmm. at all. That said, I think the way it addressed consent, especially in the idea of... So Kilgrave, like, his power is that he'll... Like, you do exactly what he says. And you want to. You feel <clears throat> as though you want to when he tells and, you And to. you're compelled beyond all other ideas. Like, yes. people kill themselves because he said to people slit their own throats they stab themselves they you know there's a lot of that even like more nuanced like the guardian article for example pointed out he entered a family's home and said that they will be delighted to have him yeah you'll you be know delighted. like it works on very you know fucked up levels yes. <laughs> yeah uh, i think the way that works is sort of a analogy to how abusers kind of gaslight and, and yes. manipulate their victims, I thought that was extremely effective. And, and, you know, disturbing as hell. Like, this is a very upsetting show. And especially yeah. if you're at all bothered by extreme violence, there's a tremendous amount of violence on the show. 
Although mostly the sexual violence is acknowledged but not portrayed. Oh, God, I, I know. I was hoping we would talk about that. It is it is the anti-Game of Thrones in that yeah. there is a mm-hmm. real, a lot of times with movies or shows or comics or anything that depicts rape, like actual rape scenes, there's this real false dichotomy that comes up in debates about it where people who defend those depictions say, oh, well, you're trying to act like rape doesn't happen in the world? Like, rape is just something you have to deal with, man. Now, that's true. Sexual violence is an extremely pervasive part of human life, but that doesn't mean you have to show a rape. Like, you can... This is a show about rape that never shows us a rape scene, and it's therefore infinitely more effective, and also it greatly decreases the... It's it's like the old line about how you can't have an anti-war... A truly anti-war film, because there will always be some degree to which it's kind of sexy. Like, uh, if you do a rape scene, there's always the chance that someone's going to go, like, that looked really... That was well shot. And right. it, this is something where that problem is not there. It is about rape without showing rape. Yeah, I think the big comparison I draw is to The Fall, where we had this yes. show that was like claiming to be, you know, I felt like people were like, it's so feminist. I was like, no, no, no. Like, it's characters sometimes say things that could be constructed as feminist. Mm-hmm. But it's also a show that casts Jamie Dornan as as a serial rapist and murderer. And, you know, it, it definitely tries to be like, isn't this so fucked up? <laughs> and you're like, okay, like, I'm actually not in the market for this kind of shit. And I thought Jessica Jones did a really, like, savvy job of, not minimizing, but also not, like, tantalizing. You know, guys, no. I think shows that are about violence and have a lot of violence are rarely acknowledging the actual cost of that violence. Totally agree. There's a lot of really violent shows, and that's part of why I'm not actually super in the market for Jessica Jones, uh. just because there's, I'm like, <laughs> I'm pretty maxed out. Like, I actually, you know, I don't need that much more stabbing. I don't need more throat slitting. I don't need, like, cleaning up blood. Like, I'm all stocked up. Like, I got enough of that shit. That said, like, as far as those kinds of stories go i think jessica jones is one of the rare shows that acknowledges the like overwhelming spiritual cost of encountering this violence witnessing this violence committing this violence having this violence committed against you like all of these things and and taking that really seriously. sure i mean a huge plot point is that there is a group of survivors of Kilgrave manipulation that forms. And because this show has the luxury and some might argue the indulgence of being 13 hours-ish long, you'll have these long scenes where it's just people talking about how much it affected their lives and in some case really ruined their lives to be put in this situation where their consent was taken away. And what's Mm -hmm. fascinating is it doesn't minimize the fact that taking away sexual consent is probably the worst form of taking away consent, but it does talk about how, like, you can have extremely traumatic experiences that involve losing your right of consent that don't involve sex. I mean, there are all these... Kilgrave is really only into girls, as far as we find out, but Mm -hmm. there are a lot of men who are manipulated by him, and they talk about how it completely destroyed them and made them question everything about what they would be willing to do and how far they could go in their lives in terms of doing terrible things. And that that, I, that was really yeah. admirable to what Margaret's saying. It shows the consequences in this very nuanced way. Yeah, it's not the... just the lack of bodily autonomy. I think it's maybe not easy to understand, but I think makes more sense on a very superficial level that like any like assault on your bodily autonomy, whether it's a sexual assault or just like getting punched in the face or whatever, yeah. I think it's like we can kind of understand how that affects you. I hope we people can, although I don't know, we live in a garbage world. Who the fuck we knows? Do. We um, do. But I think one of the things that the show does really well is acknowledge also the lack of intellectual autonomy and what happens when you know that you said, okay, but that's not real. And and that conflict of 
I can't even trust my own thoughts. Right. Um, and that, obviously, within the context of the show, is about somebody whose superpower is manipulation and he's a villain. But I think in the context of people who survive abusive relationships or, you know, and you hear like, well, why would you go back? Or like, how did you st- like, why would you do that? And and you can't explain it. And it's too yeah. hard because you're like, I know, obviously, that 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 I I was there, but I can't trust my own Right, because while it's happening, you don't have any control over it. And at the time, you think it's something you want to do. It's not that you're trapped in a robot body and you you, uh, just are seeing your your hands move in some way. You genuinely, in that moment, feel like that's what you want. So the thing is, of course you can talk about how in the past that happened, but there's this terror of like, could that happen again to me? And would I is know that, that happening it, to me right, is, now? right now? Would I know? How do I know that something isn't my choice? That's one of the terrible things about lack of consent is oftentimes at the time you think it's something you want to do or something that you're willing to do or whatever. And afterward, no amount of someone telling you like this was not your fault. You were coerced into this can fully remove that germ of doubt about it being something that you were responsible for, at least partially. I wanted to ask about, spoiler alert, Jessica ends up killing Reva, uh, Luke Cage's wife. and. Not you know, ends up. It, it happens, it, it happens like before. Right, the, right. We end up finding out. We she end up did. finding out she did, and this happens. You know, right as we see her kind of regain her autonomy, and she walks away from Kilgrave, and he doesn't have power over her anymore. And at one point, he tells her that he didn't make her kill Riva. That I thought was a good way of showing this kind of feeling of not knowing what you want and right. what you're what you're doing, and whether it's you or whether it's someone kind of forcing you to do something. And it's never really explained in this way where it gives you an easy answer to that. No. I mean, as far as whether he actually made her do it or not, I'm a big believer in when it comes to superhero fiction, don't trust the bad guys. Like, oftentimes lies happen. I interpreted that as a lie. I could be wrong. For sure. And what I loved about the villain here is he's so, like... He's such a persuasive, like, smooth talker. Right, that's the thing. And, it's just an extension of the yeah. fact that he's like that otherwise. And you're like, oh, well, you know, he said this happened. And then she very powerfully is like, no, that is not what happened. Right. But, like, you can see how it's easy to, like, believe this guy when well, he's think, just... I think the arc of this season, and I have to assume they'll do a second season. Right? I can't imagine I can't imagine that wouldn't. not happening. But that Jessica has a really permeable sense of self and that's really hard to, Ooh, that's for point. her to, yeah. to grapple with. And that's been true. So we learn part of her origin story is that she blames herself for a car accident that killed her family. And so then she moves in with Trish and, and they identify often as sisters, but they're not biological sisters. Yeah. Uh, and they were like in their mid-teens too. So it's not like she was raised with Trish from childhood. So that is one sense of self, right? That's a little bit fuzzy of like, what is my family? The difference between my family of origin, my biological family, my sociological family, which is also pretty fucked because Trish's mom is abusive to Trish. And so then Jessica's sense of self is like, am I a sister? Am I a daughter? Like that part is fuzzy. We don't know. And and neither does she. And, you know, her whole like, I'm is she going to be a hero? Right. That's sort of like the tagline kind of, I guess, like that's kind of that idea. And that line comes up throughout the show. And she has a very mixed reaction to that. She you know, she says, like, well, I'm not advertising. I'm not ashamed of it, but I'm not advertising it, right? So she doesn't know what her 
role in society is she doesn't know how she sees herself. When we see her look in the mirror, it's pretty brief. She's not a big gazer at herself, no. which is unusual. Lots of shows, especially with one major hero or anti-hero or heroine or our main protagonist, especially someone who spends a lot of time alone, which she does, uh, we see them look in the mirror a lot more. <laughs> yeah. So that's unusual. We don't see a lot of that. Mostly we see her observe. She watches other people. She's a private eye. But also she is, for good reason, very afraid that she's being watched, which she is. Yes. Uh, so she's always <laughs> looking for people who are looking at her. And that's another way that we're constructing our identity, our sense of self. How do I see myself? But how do other people see me? And in what way am I them? And am I not them? And so all of the stuff with Kilgrave, his whole, like, mind control stuff I feel like that's the source of some of Jessica's trauma but it's not the source of all of Jessica's trauma and I think that that's what makes it that's why you think oh okay I could imagine the show continuing and still having juice right in this way that I think Dexter once we have that first season of Dexter Another you're like Melissa Rosenberg yeah. but I think once we have that first season of Dexter like no one else will actually ever be as important but how do you continue having a superhero show with a villain dead well he's a villain but because it's the whole yeah. society that he the IHG what it, is it called oh yeah IGH, IGH. there's been much discussion oh of this. right see I, I don't I really want it to the, go down that I know path. I really don't want it to go that, down that road my guess is they're teasing that not so much for Jessica but for Luke Cage's show mm. because Luke Cage's powers require, at least in the comics, there's a fascinating backstory that involves prison and like experiments and again, lack of consent. And my guess is they're teeing us up for like the creepy experiments that gave Luke Cage his powers. In the comic books, are there any other villains in the Jessica Jones series? Not anything as memorable as that. Mm-hmm. The, the original conceit was Brian Michael Bendis, the writer, and uh, Michael Gatos, the, the artist, were tasked with making a comic that could be on this thing Marvel was doing in the early 2000s called The Max Line, M-A-X. And it was going to be Marvel superhero stories where you could swear and show sex. Uh, it was a very WWF era approach to what <laughs> mature things are. Um, Sounds terrible. Uh, it's well, that's but it, it, that's, but it's the, that's the amazing good. thing is I, I, I mean I'm a lifelong reader of superhero comics, and one of the reasons why I love them is because they're all about big ideas and poor execution, and that like leaves room for me as a viewer. Like if I'm reading something, if I'm you know if I'm reading 100 Years of Solitude. There's nothing for me to criticize. It's a perfect novel, and therefore there's less of a sense of ownership that I have about it. I go, all right, well, I mean, everything's been said about this that there is to say. Whereas when you read a superhero comic like Alias, which was the the comic that it was based on, no relation to the J.J. Abrams show, you read it and you go like, this is a fascinating concept. What if somebody had superpowers, had a trauma related to them, and decided to stop acting as a superhero and become a private investigator. And then there's the big idea of what if somebody had the power of mind control and used it to rape people? Like these are these are interesting ideas. They're they're big what ifs. And the execution in the comic is fine. It's mm-hmm. not it's not great, but it it, it there are seeds that when watered by the right person can really flourish. And this is what often happens where you have the comic acting kind of as a rough draft of what ends up being better in the film or television execution. That doesn't always happen. A lot of times the film and television execution is far inferior. But this is a case where Brian Michael Bendis, who is an incredible writer, a terrific guy, had this idea that was pretty good. And then it took a team of people, a lot of them women, to make it better. What did you think about the writing on Jessica Jones? Because I found myself... (laughs) 
Oh, like I found it a little clunky at times. It's a superhero show. The dialogue right. is not really the centerpiece. The ideas are and the relationships. So yeah, the it's fine. I mean, there was clunker after clunker after clunker. And yeah. like that's a reason that <laughs> and this I, is something I harp on a lot, but like right. I am here for dialogue. Then like I could take or leave a lot of the other stuff. I need like yeah. good dialogue. This show does not have good dialogue. I found it easier to ignore as the show went on. Like at first it really bugged me and then once the plot really I got really engrossed in it, I was more willing to forgive the clunkers. Yeah. So I think especially in the first couple episodes, they're leaning pretty heavily on the voiceover and the sort of like noir style that they're going Mm -hmm. for and for my money not quite achieving but I think what kept happening was that Jessica was saying shit that was already really clear to us Yeah, you know or when she's like I hate goodbyes it's like okay (laughs) like what is that like that is not a help that's not meaningful oh good thing we have a voice over here to tell us about your like that is that to me is just like such a throwaway worthless thing to have a character say especially because like well for someone who gets goodbyes you're still in touch with an awful lot of people yeah. like you don't have you haven't said goodbye to anybody like right. what goodbyes <laughs> like you keep in contact with the people you claim to hate yeah. so uh, you know like look within more yeah. <laughs> you know that kind of stuff i thought was pretty clunky I think a lot of Luke's lines wind up being real clunky, Trish, clunky. Like, the dialogue <laughs> is clunky. And even mm. though I think the story moves pretty well, I also think it really suffers from having too many episodes. Oh, my mm. goodness gracious. It was, like, that was a real slog. I mean, the, the difference, one of the reasons why I could never have both of your jobs is I hate binge watching. I'm, I, I can't stand it. I hate it. I absolutely you hate it. You could not have my job. No, I genuinely could not. I hate it so much. I just, I like serialized fiction to be serialized. It doesn't make any sense to me to have a 13-hour show that you could compress into four hours. It just, it, it's agony for me. And yeah, you could have really cut out a lot of stuff here. Yeah, I think there's about eight good hours here yeah, and we stretched it out over 13. True. And it, I think it, that's where we got, for me, the least good part of the show, which was the torture episode. Oh, when they're torturing oh, right. Kilgrave. Torture yeah. I mean, I guess a lot of the show is torture episodes because I was about to say, sad. yeah, but I know <laughs> um, what you mean. But the really overt torture, like the constant relentless torture episode yeah. because it was such a contrivance. Oh my God, when they show up in that room, I was like, oh boy, we're going to be stuck in this room for two episodes, aren't it was we? just... Yeah. Like, you don't build that set unless they're going to milk the hell out of it. It's like, so why don't you kill him? It's like, we can't. It's like, oh well, why not? Because like, that girl God. that none of us care about, I swear we have to, God. to get her out of prison. It's like, get her a better lawyer. Like, exactly. Just... Like, uh, look, it's superhero fiction. You have to have, you know, a lot of runarounds because you, you can't kill the joke or whatever. But, like, especially for a show that ends with them killing yeah. the guy. There were a million chances for that, and it just does not feel earned that they don't kill yeah. him. It is such a paper thin conceit that keeps them from killing him. Yeah, they're like, we gotta protect it's, hope. It's kind of funny when you think about oh, it. Oh, I mean, I get the, also thematically, I do get the idea of we have, it's not even so much to protect hope as like, I need to, pr- for myself, I need to prove to the world that what I did was not my fault, and I need to prove to myself as well right. that like consent was violated. But it gets real tired. And his parents are just like kind of nearby oh, for some boy like, yeah. that was like, a waste like, I'm not trying to no sound in space this one but I just <laughs> like there are so many things that we're willing to give so much room towards that when you do small things like that and it's just so dumb like there's we can do this better you know there yeah. are shows that yes that have a tremendous amount of like suspension of disbelief and all this stuff that still hold up to scrutiny and I think for a show that's that's doing so well in other areas, there's so much of the show that I was just like, what the hell? Like, 
Like, yeah. Use your head. Like, everyone could be a little bit smarter, a little bit more forthcoming, a little, you know. And instead, there's a lot of just like shenanigan that that isn't story. That yeah. that's not constructed. That's right. just it keeps you distracted enough with all of it that you don't really even notice it. Yeah, there's a lot of bluster and nonsense. Right. But yeah. <laughs> and you know, some of the action pieces I thought were terrific. And I think you know, investigating like what is the difference basically between Jessica's PTSD and who she is. Yeah. And I think having her not really know what the answer is there and having other people deal with their own traumas in other ways like that's all really interesting and I think there's plenty of room for that to be like explored and fleshed out and we could see her solve additional cases for example if we wanted to pad this to 13 I think we can right. get in a little bit more procedural stuff if a we lot of that stuff was fun when there were other cases that was like this yeah. is a fun little monster of the week type thing we're like yeah. how's she gonna get just get in a little bit of that because I think yeah. that gives us a clearer idea of like what she's like when it's not the most so important personal. task of her life right. or what she perceives to be the most important task of her life and instead what we padded it with was was just stalling yeah and and that i'm not i don't need stalling like speaking, I, I don't want stalling speaking of padding i do want to uh, crowbar one thing in here before we run out of time as somebody who has watched all of the superhero things uh because that's my job I can say this was easily the only frightening villain that has ever been in a superhero story. Ever. I mean, a filmed superhero story. There are no frightening yeah, villains in the rest. I mean, I mean, come on. Loki, the amount of erotic fan fiction written about Loki will give you a sense of, like, why The Avengers is not a scary movie. You Whereas, think there's not going to be erotic fan fiction written about a oh, David no, no, Tennant character? I'm sorry. I'm come sorry. on. Let me, let me, let me, <laughs> that was a poor metaphor, but, or a poor way to explain my point. But my, my point is, like... I said to uh, myself, not really anybody else, because no one was listening last year. And also, Abe abandoned in my, Twitter. In my, yeah, yeah, yeah. I abandoned Twitter. So, yeah. But, like, in my in my diary, I would write about how the best movie supervillain last year was J.K. Simmons and Whiplash. Like, that was something where you oh, genuinely wow. felt threatened and scared by this person, and he wielded actual power in a way that Ronan the Accuser and Guardians of the Galaxy did not. And this is the only time I've ever seen a filmed frightening uh, supervillain. Even the Joker. Did you think the Joker? I thought Heath Ledger's Joker was pretty scary. I thought Heath Ledger's Joker was so exciting and liberating in a lot of ways because you watch him and you go like, wow, maybe society really will collapse and like this is what we'll all have to turn into. You don't want to be him, but there's like some way you can relate to him. Here, Kilgrave is just... Uh, frightening to the core and also all of his powers none of them are about like shooting lightning out of a magic scepter or like trying to find the magic rock or whatever his whole thing is i mean there's no special effects when he tortures people there's that tossed off line where somebody's bothering him outside of a, a building and he says go stand at that fence and never move again oh god i know and that's there's no special effects involved. All you have to do is have that person walking over there and you fill in the blanks. You think about how horrifying that would be. And then we have a brief shot of that person later and he's standing at the fence and he's wet his pants and he's trembling because he can barely stand up. And the one That's with... horrifying in a way that nothing else in the Marvel Cinematic Universe has ever been. The scene with the, the two people who work for him, he commands them to keep their eyes open until Jessica comes yes, home. Yes, right. And that they're... was similarly... Yeah, it's, it's so small. Right. And it's it's terrifying. Yeah, and his his end game is just he just wants, wants this Jessica. He just wants Jessica, <laughs> which is even again, scarier. A lot yeah. scarier than again. I mean, maybe this is just because I'm I'm a weird cynical freak. But oftentimes when I see depictions of like this person wants to take over the world or wants to end the world, it's so abstract as to even be kind of intellectually exciting. On some level, you go like, well, hey. 
what if Loki took over the world? What would that look like? There's something about it that can be vaguely appealing. There is nothing even vaguely appealing about the idea of him being able to get Jessica to be with him again. There's nothing exciting about that. It's just terror. Yeah. And it feels somewhat true to life. Sure. <laughs> so, How many, and yeah. well, it's also that's a real that's what's, will they that's or won't they probability scarier. because a lot of people go back to their abusers and right. their rapists. So, like, although we know it's probably not going to happen on the show, the stakes are a little more believable because, you know, it's a thing that happens to people. Whereas people generally don't blow up the world. That has happened right. zero times so far. One of the things that's striking about Jessica Jones, and I thought a lot about as I was watching it, was that, like, basically we could have made this show without any superpowers. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know this is unpopular. I would have preferred that, frankly, just because I think what we actually got out of the superpower stuff was pretty limited. And the big moment where she lifts Luke out of the bed, it was like, we can do better on a prop for that body. Like, <laughs> that was phony baloney shit. Like, yeah. come on. Some of that stuff, it was just like, ugh, geez Louise. Like, it just, we didn't need it. I don't know. I mean, I know the whole point is like, it's a superhero hey, show. I'm like, it gave us one of the most, superhero gave us one of the most, really, it gave it that, that whole sequence with uh, his superpowers, meaning that his skin's unbreakable so they can't fit the needle through his arm, oh, yeah. led to, was... you think that you've seen all of the gruesome shit that the show can show you, and then they have to stick a needle through his eyeball in order to inject him with <laughs> whatever's going to save him. Think did that on the Nick, too? Oh, did they? <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. See, I didn't see like, that one. that's why I think still, the, at least it wasn't it's his still penis. effective. <laughs> <laughs> they also do that on the Nick. I know that Abe. one I knew about. That's not just Abe imagining horrible things No, no, sorry, sorry. No, no, no. I remember watching the screener for that I think before Margaret did and I was like Margaret get ready I get why other people like the show a lot yeah. It just didn't do for it for me. For all its serious themes, I had a lot of fun watching it. No, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's it's one of the reasons yeah. why uh, you love horror movies. Like, if right. you can be genuinely scared and grossed out by something, like, genuinely, on a visceral level that goes past your intellectual defenses, that's a thrill unlike anything else. It may be something you don't enjoy having happen to you very often, but it is on a a moral level, a thrill that you can't get from almost anything else other than actual terrible things happening to you. And this was really big on the forced empathy for bad things happening to people scale. And I, I, I that, that is no easy trick to pull off. So again, I'm all about stories where you have big ideas and poor execution and the big idea metatextually of being able to have a superhero story, something set in the Marvel Universe, that genuinely scares you, that's a big idea that I think they did pull off. That execution I was happy with. In addition to it pulling some of the best ideas from superhero villain stories especially, this is a show that is able to pull from contemporary television too. When we think about the big bads on prestige cable shows and, and their means of social manipulation, uh, their appetite for violence, all of these things, you know, I think Kilgrave, as much as you would put him up there with like the Joker, if we're comparing comic book characters, I think we can also really compare him to the ice truck killer on Dexter or um, I'm trying to think of like the scariest person on Breaking Bad, but there's too many. Yeah, you know, like lot. we can see all of the sort of modern serial killer shows. He's and... a lot like a, like a Ralph, Ralphie on The Sopranos. Similarly, yeah. somebody who's totally amoral and is only motivated by pleasure and wanting to get the things that he wants. I think when we contextualize Jessica Jones, it's not just among other superhero shows no. where it is at the top of the pack. I think it's a show that we have to contextualize among a bunch of prestige dramas and there, for me, it's in, in the middle of the pack. All right. 
That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Sarah Abdurrahman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. If you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Margin Charge. I'm Abraham Reisman, and you can find me online at www.abrahamreisman.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.